0: Welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode number 32, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the 10th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. As well, later in the episode, we'll be wrapping up 1939 with our first glimpse at the Superman radio show. Just as a reminder before we get into things, don't forget, as I announced last episode, beginning this week and for the rest of September, the show is going bi-weekly. There will be an episode on Tuesday, like normal, and a second episode on Friday. I'm shifting to the schedule for the month in order to make up the four episodes that I've missed over the course of the many computer issues that I've had this summer. There is going to be some good stuff over the course of those shows, we will be looking at another Sunday storyline, which is better than the first. I will have a guest co-host for at least one episode, and we'll be kicking off our regular look at the radio serial and more. So, however you get the show, whether you are subscribed via iTunes or the RSS feed, or if you keep track of new episodes via the uh, the site or the Facebook page or Twitter or the Superman Podcast Network, however you do it, Be sure to keep an eye open uh, over the next four Fridays as well so that you don't miss an episode.
1: Hey everybody, my name is Michael Bailey and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast, Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until, well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworlds stories just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman, all the time, as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd, Death in the Family, Nightfall, Epic, No Man's Land. You have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast. Every Tuesday at baileysbatmanpodcast.com.
0: Like I said, this episode, we will be looking at the 10th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. This storyline and the next two are actually more like one big storyline. However, the Kitchen Sink Collections break them into three separate storylines. And there are decent breaking points, so that's how I'm going to cover them on the show. Not only will it spread things out more and make things a bit easier for me... But it will also allow us to not have to go so long without getting into a newspaper story. And it will, make, it will give them more of a feel of an ongoing serial, which we are going to get into more with the radio show. So this storyline, or this part of the storyline, however you want to look at it, was 18 strips long, strips 289 through 306 of the strip. And it ran from December eighteenth, 1939 to January 6, 1940. That puts it starting about two weeks before the release of Action Comics number 21, which we looked at last episode, and it ends about a week and a half after that issue was likely released. During the duration of this strip, the Sundays were wrapping up the 24 Hours to Run storyline from episode 30 and kicking off a new storyline that we will look at in an upcoming episode. The story was written by Jerry Siegel, The Grand Comics Database credits art to Dennis Neville with Joe Schuster Superman figures. The story has been titled Unnatural Disasters and picks up almost immediately after the end of the last storyline from the Dailies, which we looked at in episode 29. If you recall, at the end of that story, Lois and Clark had purchased an edition of the newly minted Daily Planet, hoping to see Lois' latest scoop on the front page. However, they were surprised to find Lois' story scuttled inside and the front page declaring War in Europe. As we open, we find that the declaration of war has thrown the offices of the Daily Planet into mass turmoil. And believe me, as someone who works in a newsroom, when huge news stories break, it can indeed throw a newsroom into a frenzy. Um, I was working at a smaller paper that didn't really cover national news when 9-11 happened so I can't really speak to that but I've seen other news stories anything from a major fire to a shooting or whatever and the effect that those have had so I can only imagine what the declaration of war would do so as reporters and other newspaper employees scurry about a telegram comes in for editor Taylor since the editor is out Clark grabs a telegram which is sent by Western Union, which I can only think is product placement, and finds that it reads, Elmore Dam destroyed by a mysterious explosion, signed Ajax News. Clark puts in a call to check on the story, but finds everything at the dam is A-OK. Curious about the story, Clark switches to Superman and heads to the roof of the Daily Planet building. Jumping off and speeding along a road, Superman gleefully leaps Frog's cars. Nearing the location, Superman speeds up the side of a cliff overlooking the dam and finds that the dam is indeed just fine. Superman wonders what's going on, but just then, with his telescopic vision, Superman spots two men rigging up some TNT near the base of the dam. Leaping into action, Superman goes after the two thugs, just as they finish connecting the dynamite and start to run. Grabbing the men, Superman demands to know what they're up to. The men are frantic, to get away from the TNT, and with only seconds to go, only have that on their minds. But Superman stands firm with the two men in his clutches, and soon, the dynamite explodes, sending all three bodies flying. Superman is flung into the waters, and is swept along by the raging flood. Shortly, Superman's telescopic vision spots the town of Terryville directly in the path of the water. Superman swims for all he's worth through the raging torrent. The narration tells us his arms move so fast, they appear like propellers. Superman charges ahead of the waters, the strangest race of all time, a man, fleetly dashing before a raging flood. Who will win, nature in its rugged fury, or Superman? Out the flood, Superman leaps to the top of a nearby mountain. Observing the doomed town below, Superman cups his hands in front of his mouth and shouts a warning which carries for miles. RUN FOR YOUR LIVES! THE dam IS GONE! As Superman's voice booms through the streets, Terryville residents flee in panic, some thinking it might be God himself giving a warning of the end of the world. Residents hurriedly speed out of town, but Superman sees that despite their haste, they aren't going to outrace the oncoming flood. Leaping down from the cliff, Superman lands directly in the path of the approaching waters. Using his arms like furious plows, Superman begins digging into the soil and, within minutes, has dug a trench nearly a mile long. Superman leaps to safety mere seconds before the water crashes into the freshly dug hole. Terryville is saved and the fleeing residents can hardly believe their eyes. Superman leaps off as a chorus of grateful cheers and thanks rises from the crowd. Making his way elsewhere, Superman determines to look into how the Ajax News Agency was able to predict the dam's destruction before it happened. Arriving at the offices of the agency, Superman hangs outside a window and listens to the goings-on inside the building. In one of the offices, two men berate a third man by the name of Gigi for sending the news dispatch too early. Gigi apologizes, saying it was just a mistake, but one of the men, a particularly sinister-looking fella, says their superiors have ways of discouraging mistakes. Yes, ways. Outside, Superman is ready to jump in and start busting some heads, but pauses when the men continue their conversation. It seems the men have also poisoned the Remsen Reservoir, and in about 15 minutes, the polluted water will flow throughout the city. Immediately, Superman takes off in a run towards the reservoir. Sure, the crooks need a head-thumping, but saving the town from the deadly water has to be Superman's priority. However, upon arriving at the reservoir... He's held at gunpoint by the Reservoir's Watchman, who mistakes him for a thief. Superman tries to explain that the water is poisoned, but the Watchman is having none of it and starts to open the Reservoir. Superman grabs the man, telling him that if he won't stop willingly, he will have to stop him by force. Just then, Blackie, the Reservoir's guard dog, runs up. The Watchman orders the dog to attack Superman, but our hero eases the dog's temper, calming him with a simple pat on the head, However, Blackie then starts to lap up some of the water trickling from the reservoir. Superman tries to stop the dog, but it's too late. Blackie has drank the poisoned water, and almost immediately, he falls over, dead. Superman apologizes for the dog's death, and the Watchman realizes that Superman spoke the truth about the poisoned water. As Superman leaps off, the Watchman mourns his dead canine friend, saying that even though Blackie died, thousands were saved because of him meaning his death was not in vain. And that's where we'll pick up next time. Kind of a soft ending, but as I said, there is more to this in the next two stories. That said, I thought this was a decent story. I liked Superman taking on the threat of a destroyed dam. We've seen this before, way back in Action Comics number 5, but there that seemed more like simply giving Superman a reason to save Lois Lane. Uh, Superman didn't do anything to divert the waters or try to prevent the destruction. He just grabbed Lois and ran. Speaking of, not to get off topic, but speaking of, there's no Lois whatsoever in this story, which is surprising given that she and Clark were together at the end of the last story. Then again, there is a war that just erupted, and very little of the story was set at the Daily Planet, so maybe she's out getting the quote-unquote feminine perspective on the war. Or something. Anyway, it was nice seeing Superman actually take on the challenge of the dam itself here. And it reminded me somewhat of a sequence in one of the earliest storylines from the radio serial, which I won't speak too much of right now, since we'll be getting into it before the year's end. But given what we're going to see in... Uh, five or six episodes I think about another sequence that happens it's it's kind of interesting that some of the same things are happening in the comics that will happen in the radio show Superman warns the town by shouting from afar and yes a super shout is a really silly power but I kind of liked it here at this point Superman and all Kryptonians actually are just like us but better The origins have described Kryptonians as a race of supermen evolved to the peak of perfection. You know, they can hear better, see better, run faster, lift more, and so on. I'm not really sure how X-ray vision fits into that, but the writers will eventually recognize that issue too. Anyway, given that, it makes sense that he would be able to shout louder than a regular human. It doesn't work on every level, I realize, and... Biologically, the very premise is flawed, I guess. But it's comics, so these things are to be expected. And if you, if you can't get past these things, then superhero comics probably aren't for you anyway. Um, I like the reactions of the townspeople stemming from this whole thing. You know, they hear Superman's voice booming through town, and you've got people running around thinking it's the end of the world. Uh, my take is that they can't really see the oncoming floodwater at this point, so all they know is this voice booming through town, and they've got no idea what's going on, and it just throws the whole town into a panic. And I really like the reactions after they see Superman save them. You've got all kinds of reactions. One woman is exclaiming "Glory be!" and there's a guy saying "He he he's not human," while another says. Don't care what he is. He saved our lives. And I just like the variety there. I mean, even though it seems like they're all thankful, they aren't just all the gushing, gee golly, thanks, Superman, which at this point, with how the character has been depicted until now, really wouldn't feel right. These feel like natural reactions to me. You've got one person who's amazed. Another is a bit freaked out that a person who looks like a normal human is able to do these things, And another person recognizes that, but doesn't care because he, you know, just saved their lives. And like I said, it just all feels very natural to me and right for this period in the character's history. The scene at the end with the dog made me a little sad. And I'm not afraid to admit that. It wasn't as emotional as it could have been. Conversely, some might say it was overly sappy. But however you want to look at it, as a dog owner, it got to me just a tiny bit. Not as much as the recently released and much-delayed story from Superman number 712 by uh, Kurt Busiek. If you're a dog owner and don't feel at least a little twinge of emotion when you read that, I might be led to question your humanity, but that's off-topic, so we'll just move on. Speaking of lack of humanity, though, this issue sees Superman killing two people. We've seen a lot of deaths at Superman's hands in the last year and a half of stories. Some of the deaths have been a bit ambiguous or could be seen as crooks falling victim to their own machinations. But here, Superman finds the two guys rigging up the dynamite and he holds them there until the dynamite explodes. All three are flung through the air, Superman lands in the water, and it seems struggled a bit in the rough waves. The two crooks are not seen again in the story, and I'm pretty sure that they aren't seen again, period. So, even more so than Runyon back in the sixth storyline from the dailies, the blood from these two guys is very much on Superman's hands. And I don't like that one bit, and I'm glad we are very nearly past that era of Superman's history. On the subject of criminals, though, The three guys behind this whole mess are not brought to justice or even dealt with by Superman. However, since the story picks up more or less right where we left off, and I know he deals with them in the next storyline, I'm not going to consider that a, a black mark on the story. We'll just wait and see what happens then. The art in this story is a small step up from the last couple. Unfortunately, it's only a small step. The worst part... And I hate to say this, but the worst part is the Superman figures. Throughout quite a bit of the story, it's worse right in the middle of the story, then it gets a little better before going downhill again at the end. But the Superman figures just look below par. From what I've read, Schuster's eyes were really bad at this point, so that could explain it. Plus, after several stories in a row of subpar artwork... I'm convinced more than ever that the increased workload was just really weighing on the Schuster shop at this point. Still, there are some good points. The non-Superman figures look really great. There's just lots of variation in their appearances. We do get a couple nice close-ups of Superman. Blackie at the end looks like a real dog, and that part was most certainly Neville, since, as we've seen, animals were not Schuster's strong point. And we do get a really nice panel in strip 299. It's a double panel, actually, during the scene where Superman is digging the trench. We see Superman kind of down on one knee, and he's moving his arms, and we get multiple images of his arms, which is definitely not a technique that they used very often in this era. Between this and the X-ray vision bit from Action Comics number 18, it's really great seeing the artist experimenting with different techniques to show off Superman's powers. All in all, though, this storyline, or this first chapter of the larger storyline, was a real nice change of pace, with the Superman vs. Nature story being the majority of it. It didn't really end as neatly as the others, but given that it continues, I'm not judging on that. I'm interested in seeing where it goes in the next storyline and can better judge it then. There's only been one reprint for this story, And that's in the volumes from Kitchen Sink. This is the final story in the first dailies volume. So we will be moving on to the second volume. And man, it's hard to believe we've made it through two chronicles and a volume of the dailies already. But anyway, we'll be moving on to the second volume with the second part of the story. And this story is also online for free at dccomics.com. And you will find a direct link to that in the show notes.
2: Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid 1960's right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and action comics as well as the Supergirl stories and I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at wwwfortressofbailey supermanpodcastnetwork Superman Podcast Network, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman.
0: So that pretty much wraps up 1939. There was one more Sunday strip, published on December 31st of the year, which we will talk about in episode 34, but other than that, we have gone through all of the published Superman stories from 1939. However, there was one more thing from the year that I wanted to, wanted to touch on, and that is the Superman radio show. Now if you're thinking the Superman radio show didn't start until 1940, you are absolutely correct. However, development for the show began in 1939. We'll talk more in detail about the history and development of the show when we actually start coverage. However, in 1939, Alan Duchovny and Bob Maxwell started the process of developing the show, and in doing so, put together four sample episodes, which are often referred to as audition recordings. They aren't auditions in the sense of actors trying out for parts but more like pilot or prototype episodes that they used in order to try and find a sponsor for the show. I'm not going to do synopses for them right now. There are a number of deviations from the comics, particularly in the origin, that are really interesting. However, the scripts for those first two audition shows are 95% identical to the first two actual episodes of the series. And the last two hold several bits and pieces that are used in later episodes. So I'd rather not spoil too much ahead by going over them in in extended detail now. However, there are some very notable firsts in these recordings. Some of which, due to the sheer historical nature of them, I really felt I needed to point out now. And I can do so without spoiling too much. First up is that these recordings feature the first actor to portray Superman and Clark Kent in any medium, Clayton Johnson Hermance Jr., better known by his professional stage name of Bud Collier. Superman's biological parents, jor and Lara, are portrayed for the first time as well, portrayed by Ned Weaver and Agnes Moorhead. And of course, Lois Lane makes a relatively brief appearance. I believe in these recordings she is voiced by Frances Chaney though it could be Raleigh Bester, who will be the first actress for the character when the show starts proper. And there will be more on all of these folks in upcoming episodes, though for those of you who are fans of old-time radio, several of those names should be familiar to you already. No other characters from the comics or newspaper strips appear in these recordings, though at this point George Taylor and the Ultra Humanite are really all there is as far as recurring characters. But, speaking of characters, these recordings feature the sort of debut of a new character, as Clark is brought on as the reporter of the New York Daily Flash by one Paris White. I guess it really isn't spoiling anything except if you happen to have been living in a cave all of your life, but obviously, traditionally, Clark's editor at the Daily Planet is Perry White, but here he is called the more formal Paris. As for the Daily Flash, again, this is another case where knowing lead times on the stories could really help narrow down the chronology of who did what, where, and when. I don't recall ever seeing a date for these audition recordings more specific than 1939. However, I've been able to narrow it down a little more because in the opening to episode 3 the announcer makes a reference to the Superman of America Club, which means they likely would have had to have been done after that started, and the club was first announced in Superman number 1, which was released on May 18th. Now, in the second episode, there is a reference to Floyd Gibbons, who was one of radio's first news reporters and a war correspondent for the Chicago Tribune during World War I. Gibbons died at the end of September in 1939, since Gibbons had been retired, or at least out of the spotlight for a few years at this point, my guess is that these were done after his death, when he would have been back in the news and back in the minds of the writers. The reference is a really eerie coincidence if they were done before, so I'm, I really feel strongly that that puts them being done in October or later. Metropolis and editor George Taylor were both named in the June 7th Daily Strip and then brought into comics that following August. However, Taylor's name rarely made it into stories in the following months, so it's understandable that the writers might have been unaware of it, or just didn't find it an important detail to carry over. We saw a few episodes ago that the Daily Star became the Daily Planet in the November 13 Daily Strip. If these audition recordings were done in October, It's completely plausible that the name change of the newspaper was already in the works at this time. The fact that the Sunday strip from November 5th still says Daily Star could dispute that, but again, there's that pesky issue of lead times. So all this raises a question in my mind of, was the Daily Flash the original second name for the paper? Could that name have been rejected because of Flash Comics, and the new character, The Flash, which came out at the beginning of November, and definitely would have been in the works when all this was happening. The Daily Planet finally replaces The Daily Star in the comics in a book released just three days after the debut of the radio show. So, both of those would have no doubt been in production at the same time. So, were the radio show and the comics changed to line up with the newspaper? Or was the Daily Flash rejected but only after it was used in the auditions and it then became the Daily Planet? Or are all these things just coming together just one big coincidence? It's all just speculation really, but it's it's just fascinating how the dates line up. And if I knew lead times, I could narrow it down even further. Unfortunately, we will likely never know for sure. Still, In these recordings, we have Clark Kent working for the New York Daily Flash under editor Paris White. These recordings also introduce another iconic part of Superman lore. Those who heard the first recording were treated to an early version of what would soon become a very familiar cry. Up in the
3: sky! Well, it's a giant bird. It's an egg. It's Superman!
0: But then the next three episodes, it was reworded and changed slightly to an even more familiar cry. And that clip was used at the beginning and the end of the last three recordings. A new recording will be done when the radio show starts proper and will go on to make the phrase as synonymous with Superman as his red cape. Hearing that cry in relation to Superman is just, it's awesome. I mean, that phrase, that's a phrase that everyone knows. You walk up to some stranger on the street, and you say, it's a bird, it's a plane, and ask them to finish, and they're going to know, it's Superman. But as cool as that is, and as important as that is, perhaps the most significant thing about these recordings is that Superman is clearly flying. He's not jumping great distances, he's not doing the ambiguous pseudo-fly leaping that we've seen a lot of in recent stories, he's flying through the air. The characters in the story make note of it, the narration notes it, and at one point they even describe Superman as hovering above a road, so there can be no mistake whatsoever. It will be a while before we get full on flight in the comic books or newspaper strips, but in the radio show... And first in these audition recordings, Superman Takes Flight. But that's it for those. For now, anyway. Like I said, we will talk much more about the radio show in future episodes. So that's pretty much it for 1939. Like I said, there was just one more Sunday strip. But after that, we'll be done with the year. And it was a big year for the character. But, you know, as big as it was, 1940 is just as big, and maybe even more so. And 1941 and 1942 are huge as well. I mean, from here on out, things just keep, (laughs) not to be cliche, but they just keep going up, up and away. I have been looking ahead a little bit, and we really do have some awesome stuff coming down the pike. And I hope that you are looking forward to it as much as I am.
1: My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast.
4: Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show, wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic.
1: Like what? (laughs)
4: Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor.
1: And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 from... wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this.
4: I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital.
1: Look, all we need to say is that this is a trailer... For a show called From Crisis to Crisis A Superman Podcast Presented by the Superman homepage My name is Michael Bailey I'm Jeffrey Taylor And every week We give in-depth Synopsis and reviews For just about Every Superman book Published between Man of Steel Number 1 In 1986
4: And Adventures of Superman Number 649 In 2006 We also talk about The related Superman media What was happening In the rest of the world When these comics Were published And what else was going on In the DC Universe
1: The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com.
4: From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
1: So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and beyond.
4: And write into the show at From Crisis to Crisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing.
1: Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20 year old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. <laughs>
3: My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at BatgirlToOracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you.
0: Oh, there's one more thing. Because those auditions were done primarily to find a sponsor for the show, the beginning and ending of each episode has a fake commercial for the Blank Company, makers of that extra special breakfast cereal Blankarine. Actually, the first episode calls them Blankos, but still. That has nothing to do with Superman or his history, necessarily, but it amused me quite a bit. Anyway, next time, we'll be looking at Action Comics number 22, which finds Superman, Clark Kent, and Lois Lane dealing with war in a foreign country. And I want to thank you very much for joining me this time. Please remember to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes for this and all episodes, as well as links to previous episodes. At the site, you will also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link if you wish to subscribe to the show directly. As always, iTunes reviews are welcomed and appreciated if you have time to leave one. At the site, you will also find the link to the show's Facebook page and the Twitter feed so that you can follow the show on on those sites. And if you have comments, questions, or other feedback, you will also find the email link, thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Please feel free to write in and let me know your thoughts. Also remember to stop by the Superman homepage at supermanhomepage.com. Steve Eunice has graciously agreed to promote the show whenever I have a new episode, so you can be notified that way as well. The show is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network, and I invite you to head on over to supermanpodcastnetwork.com and check out all of the excellent shows in the network, which cover just about every era of The Man of Steel. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
3: Superman stands for fairness and strength and endurance, too. So if you would be a junior Superman,
2: a member of the constantly growing Superman of America, remember the rules of our organization. First, help the weak and helpless. Second, train heart and hand and mind to patriotic service. Third, build up your own strength and endurance and vitality by insisting on those regular every-morning platefuls of blankereens.